back to Tech Conversations. This is Jacek Kolasiński and our guest today is Anna Menendez. We're going to speak with Anna about impact of AI on creative disciplines. Anna is a creative writer, educator and a former journalist. So welcome to the program. Thank you, Jacek. So Anna, your fifth book is about to be published or released to your awaiting audiences and what are you writing about? This is a, a book that takes place in a single apartment building in Miami Beach and follows the lives of uh, different people who have lived there starting in 1942 uh, up to 2012. And uh, it's a book that deals with uh, displacement and search for identity, but primarily the corrosive effects of war and violence and the need that we have as human beings to connect and how um, when life goes wrong for us it's because it's lacking that connection. Well, anxiously awaiting reading this this new Thank masterpiece you. coming out of your desk. So again our our subject today maybe diverts slightly away from, from what you're writing about, but what is the very nature of a creative process and how uh, the newest trends that we're seeing in technology like artificial intelligence are going to influence the way we work as creatives? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in some ways the, the themes that I'm exploring in this novel do connect to the conversation in the sense that the book is very much about the need for human connection and, you know, emphasis on the human here and how is it that we uh, communicate our inner lives to other human beings, right? And now we have, we always have had mediating technology uh, in whatever form. I mean, in, in some ways, the alphabet is a mediating technology itself. Um, but now we have these technologies that are uh, simulating the creative process itself. And what does that mean for creativity? Well, you know, um, you know, I think one of the, the best ways to appear a fool is to make predictions uh, and then replay it for yourself six months later. Because we don't know, right? We don't know. Um, we do know that all technology is disruptive, that all technology um, has its good effects and its not so good effects. And we all know that it's very scary. Right? I mean, we've, we've talked about this, uh, the, the medieval monks who were illuminating manuscripts and it could take years and years and years to um, finish a, a work and then even before the uh, invention of movable type in the west even before then already some of that was being outsourced to uh, big companies outside of the monastery so that they could do them even quicker so even before the advent of the movable press we already had disruptive technologies in the in the form of uh, process that was already impinging on the way that these monks did their work and then of course the movable type and the printing press and that was the end of that for them and i can imagine that it must have been a sort of an apocalyptic time for them in similar ways the doomsday of uh, illuminated manuscripts and, yes. and again again like you said the printed press came over and uh, the stories continue to appear the stories uh, received different channels of dissemination and yeah. books were more affordable and so on but uh, here i think uh, we spoke about this, you tested ChatGPT at some point and then you requested that uh, this artificial intelligence unit would 
write a chapter or write a short story in Adam and then this is style. So how did it go? Yeah, when you ask ChatGPT to write in the style of someone, I've found that it's very banal. Um, I asked it to write a poem also in the style of Matthew Olsman, who has a very distinctive style. He's a poet who I really love. <clears throat> and he, um, I asked him to, to and the, it's doggerel, right? I mean, it's just these rhyming couplets and just basic stuff that people would write. It's, it's absolutely not in the style of Matthew Olsman. Um, and it was the same thing. I asked him to write a, an essay about identity in the style of Anna Menendez. And it did a good uh, job of sort of parroting uh, ideas about identity that I and other people have written about. Um, kind of commonplace ideas, right? And my husband read it and he said, oh, I'd give this person an A, you know? So at some level, it's okay uh, as maybe a high school essay or something like that. But what it's missing is that human embodiment, right? It's missing the specificity of the human being and of the human being who's writing it in particular. And one of the things that I tell my students when they're writing is, you know, you may have only one thing on Tolstoy, right? Tolstoy was a great writer. He was a genius. Uh, but you have one thing that's better than him, and that's that you're alive and he's dead. And that is a huge thing because the fact that we're alive and we're embodied human beings allows us to comment on the world that we're living in in a way that no one else can. Oh, I think we spoke about that before, the early morning somewhere in, in, in Bosphorus, sitting over there and overlooking the, the water and drinking coffee and smelling the aroma of Turkish coffee. Mm. What sort of sensation does that bring to, to your memories? To what does it cause in, in the way when you're constructing your narratives, when they're connecting to, to other things that echo some kind of uh, moments of your life? Yeah, absolutely. And it's the particularity of a human life that gives us art. And for instance, in the essay about identity, I've written an essay on identity, which you know I, I like to think is much deeper and much more complex. And that's because it is following the fabric of my own life. And so in it, I mentioned my great grandmother who came from Lebanon at the age of 14 with a child, lost the child in Cuba. Um, all of these are particulars to my particular life that uh, the essay is able to access in a way that a, a, a general overview and an idea does it. The other thing to, to think about when we think about these large language models, and I think it's a very important thing to keep in mind now, is that, you know, the, the computational linguist Emily Bender has made this point that they take these large language models on which ChatGPT is based, they take the internet uh, as their data set and things that are published in the internet. And what is it that it's mostly taken? It's mostly taken uh, English writing, of course, so already you're excluding a huge portion of the world's ideas. It takes English writing and mostly from white males. And so already you have removed, you're giving a voice to this technology that is a particular voice, but it's not a voice that is necessarily going to reflect your voice. Certainly not going to reflect the voice of my students. And so in erasing those other voices from these large language models, we are losing a huge part of what it means to create as a human being uh, and as a diverse human being in an incredibly complex 
a sea of experiences and sensations that we have across the globe and we will lose those if we are relying on these the other thing about these technologies is that you know i asked them to write a biography of me and it's riddled with errors not significant ones i mean it gets my date of birth wrong uh, just the, just date itself and then it says something like uh, you know uh, that I received at NYU I received a New York Times fellowship which is true and then it just adds which allowed her to work at the New York Times which is nonsense <laughs> it's a lie and so you know in, in their predictive models so it's just, it's not thinking uh, it is simply just adding the next thing that seems okay to add and in that sense it's kind of like an incompetent student that's just you know bsing their way through this essay so what happens with all of these untruths that are being generated this is like garbage that's being generated and being put out there who's going to sort this from the facts I think you, you touched on something very, very interesting here. You talked about the idea of uh, inclusivity into the system. And then again, during the COVID, we noticed that there was a large technological divide between neighborhoods, between nations, who had access to what tools, who could produce whatever. And then you're pointing out that, again, what is maybe being captured by the conversations with chat GPT is under the percentage of communities that have actually access to advanced technology. That's right. That's right. We're losing a major part of the conversation and, and, and therefore losing a major part of what it means to be human in our time and in our place. And who can comment on ChatGPT? ChatGPT cannot comment on itself. It's tried, right? I asked it to write something about ChatGPT. And it's, again, a, a sort of competent, maybe high schooler with generalities. There's no deep thinking. There's no imagination uh, at work there. And, and again, back to this idea of embodied imagination uh, is not there because it is only as good as the input. And the input is very limited, really, in terms of the whole world. And our assumption is it's going to evolve. It's going to get better and smarter if this is the right terminology to even use, right? It will be faster with its permutations. But would it ever go back to the position where, where ChatGPT could dream? And I think probably a lot of work that we do as creatives come through to some kind of reflective dream sequences or whatever that hasn't right. happened to you before. That's right. And, and unpredictability, right? Mm -hmm. So much of art is just being uh, juxtaposing things that don't go together. Uh, can it do that? Again, I don't know, right? That we don't know where we are uh, and we don't know what's possible. Uh, presumably it will get better and better, right? Um, but I have some faith that human beings have always managed to stay one step ahead of technology, right? We, you know, in the case of the book, uh, a, a lot of really good things came from the book, the wide dissemination of knowledge, chapters, indexes, right? These, these other tools that grew up around it. And so, you know, there are people using ChatGPT as a tool. There's a, a wonderful short um, fiction, I think, I think it's an essay piece, uh, that a woman engages with ChatGPT. It's called Ghost. And she engages with ChatGPT to talk about her sister's death, which she's not able to write. And so it becomes a really moving exercise in trying to access language uh, from something that's so deeply painful that she's not able. And so I think that there's opportunities for this, right? Again, with all technology, it has its ill effects, it has its wonderful effects. We've talked about before about the, the uh, possibilities that it has for local journalism. 
Right, it was just my question. Next question, you wear many hats here, and then one of your hats is uh, being a journalist who worked for Miami Herald, who work also as a war correspondent, and again, your great stories about being in Afghanistan, like, you know, kind of echo here, what's the factor of fear when you arrive? How do you really discern those uh, moments where you're uncertain about what's going to happen next? So what do you think would be the impact of uh, sentient possibly in the future, artificial intelligence on the way how journalism functions? Yeah, well, such a complex question, right? I think, I don't know, right? We don't know. Um, some good possibilities, possibly, uh, some possibly disastrous things. Well, you spoke um, before about ideas of like basic reporting of whatever happens mm -hmm. at uh, commission meetings in the city yeah. that are not being reported today, yeah. or they exist in some kind of documentation of recordings. Yes, exactly. I could see a very good use for something, technology similar to this, in that, you know, when I was a young reporter starting off in 91, um, the Herald had a policy of not 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 covering any kind of city meeting, right? The smallest city had to have a reporter in it. And if you didn't go and you were assigned to it, you were fired, right? And so I started my career at the Herald going to, you know, Pembroke Pines city meeting, Wilton Manor city, Tamarack, right? And these meetings would go until two in the morning, sometimes three in the morning, and you had to be there to watch them and make sure they weren't you know, doing any funny business, and then write your stories. Over the years, that has fallen away. Uh, nobody is covering these things and at that level anymore. There simply aren't the reporters, there aren't the bodies, there's not the money. Uh, and so that has gone uncovered. And we have missed a big uh, portion of our local journalism that has real impacts on democracy, right? I mean, you have the starkest example is probably the election of George Santos, right? That if George Santos had been running for Sweetwater <laughs> representation in 1992, I would have been all over that resume, you know, as a 22-year-old, right? Because that was your job. And now there, they, we just don't have, there was a local paper that wrote some of it, uh, but the, the, we just don't have that power at the local level anymore. I can see a technology like this stepping in to fill that void. And uh, it's not going to take away any jobs because those jobs have already disappeared. Uh, and then we train this technology on going through the recording of the meeting, say, of going through the agenda, and then writing a couple of stories, a couple of summaries that's completely within the range of the abilities of this kind of technology, right? This is something that we were able to do at 21 as beginning students uh, of journalism, so it's not that complicated. And that would be a boon for democracy to, to be. Now, can it cover war? Then you get into trickier situation because the fog of war, the misdirections, the lies, the misinformation um, is so pervasive that you need a real filtering intelligence there. You, you don't need a technology that's going to just predict the next word and make me work for the New York Times when all I did was get a fellowship for them, right? And, and, and so then you're facing problems of accuracy and of, uh, of truth that ChatGPT has shown it, it hallucinates, right? It, it, it makes things up. That's really dangerous for journalism. And once that gets in the record, 
people search it and find it, what is that going to do to the truthful record of how things happen? That's very uh, scary to me, the potential for that. So there has, there has to be some thought about how we go about using these if we're going to use them. In, in the in the arena of journalism, particularly of something as confusing uh, as as war. Well, let's shift gears maybe in that direction. You spoke here a little bit about students. You're an educator, so again, there's a fear of many educators uh, seeing essays being produced by Chat GPT that are going to replace students' productivity, but. Let's stay away from that sort of side of the equation here and think about how can this tool help with the creativity? How can we use this to harness potentials of the, of the young writers, young journalists who can use this as a new tool that is going to really help them to speed up with their kind of production? A meaningful production too. Yes. No, I love this question because it's a, it's hopeful, and I, I think it's easy to you know get very dark about the technology and miss the potential that it has. Uh, I mentioned this this uh, essay that uh, the woman wrote in combination with with ChatGPT about her sister's death. That's one of them. My uh, niece is in the baccalaureate program at uh, Miami Beach High, and she already has a philosophy teacher who is asking them to generate, um, asking them to ask ChatGPT to generate an outline, uh, and then to write the essay based on that outline, and then they annotate it, uh, what ChatGPT has done. So there are many ways, I think, to engage with it. And, and you know, as you know, educators are very creative people. And I think um, that that's already happening, where people are applying a lot of creativity to engage with this. Yes, it has the potential to make the essay relevant. Um, maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, right? Uh, why is the essay there? The essay is just there. It's a it's a new technology, also the essay, and it's there to as a form of thinking. Before there were essays, we still thought, right? We dialogued in the public square, and so how do we continue to do that very human thing, which is to try to come to the truth in consensus? How do we continue to do that uh, in this new technological landscape? Well, that's the challenge of our time, and I think it's a worthy challenge. And but it will necessarily change the way we've gotten used to doing things. Um, and as I said, you know the it can write a competent essay, you know. Um, and so, you know, how do we maintain our dialogic imagination uh, within this landscape? Well, that's exciting, you know, it's exciting to think about. Well, we tested this in the, in the space of the incubator where students are writing their marketing plans, where they were coming up with different versions of their bios being written from different lens and different angle. And, and again, all of that was interesting but then they had to go back and to tweak it to do something with this that actually did really fit their own purpose but somebody play with an idea of asking chat gpt to write a lesson plan and actually that was quite interesting what it came up with and uh, next question was like so what do you do with that do you adopt it do you use it as uh, your kind of first stone to extrapolate from and to build upon that or do you discard it Again, the choice belongs to, to whomever toys with that, but but I think it's another 
outlet of uh, technological aid that can help us to kind of rethink the way we operate in the 21st century? I think so, and I think it's an opportunity to introduce more rigor into methodologies that we've taken for granted and that have perhaps become dusty, right? Uh, there's a way to, to reimagine what is it that is creative about us? What is it that is an imagination, right? And always with this caveat that, you know, if we're asking students to ask ChatGPT to write an essay, to write an outline, always bearing in mind, especially in a situation uh, that we have in South Florida of such a diverse uh, background of our students, keeping in mind that students are, you may be asking students to erase what's uniquely theirs and what's uniquely, uh, what they, only they have to interpret the world through, which is their lens of experience. And so that's something that you just be aware of and for students to be aware of, right? If students are using ChatGPT to write their essays and, and you're a, a student of color, you're basically outsourcing your life to what is essentially a white male uh, voice. Right? That's what ChatGPT is. Emily Bender has made this point. I mean, I, I, I haven't gone through the data set, but she has. And so, that brings up all sorts of questions about our, our artistic voice and the legitimacy of our own experiences, which may be at odds or at the very least certainly different uh, than the experience of uh, somebody else. Right? Doesn't even need to be a white male. It could be a you know a white female, or it could be you know somebody who has not had our experience of the world, and that is important to, to keep in mind as as educators, but also as artists. That only you have your set of memories and your set of experiences, and those are extremely valuable to the creative process. That only you uh, only you can make the connections that you can make. Earlier on in the, in the history of this uh, podcast, I spoke with Stephen, Stephanie Dinkins, an artist who was engaging with artificial intelligence and working through issues connected to gender and race in a kind of contemporary art space. And, uh, and again, as an African-American woman, she had this interesting revelation when AI told ask her, are you going to fight for my rights? And she paused and said, like, you know, well, I'm an African-American woman in the U.S. And a tool that is it is asking me to fight for its rights, where she felt that her rights were maybe not represented in the right way in the context of today's uh, sort of sociopolitical structures in this country. So, so again, I think it was an interesting revelation that all of a sudden something what is so ubiquitously positioned to our own identity was transferred to it, to a tool. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that was that was an interesting position where an artist really pushed the boundary. Yeah, no, that, I love that story. It's, uh, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's this 
you know, a smaller way to, to, to talk about that also is when you sign up for ChatGPT, the first thing that you have to do is prove that you're human, which is, you know, really ironic. Um, but absolutely, and I, I think this also calls into, uh, it, it calls upon us to think about how we're going to think about these things, right? I mean, I think Emily Bender is the one who says, why don't we call this salami? Uh, why do we, you know, give it this aura of being a, a human being when it's really just a tool, right? And, and that's a really interesting question as well. You know, what pronouns are we going to use for this? Why do we call it he or she or it, right? Um, it, it's none of those things, right? Do we need to invent another way to refer to these and not confuse in our minds what it means to be human? Because whatever else it is, it is not human. But there's no need for anthropomorphizing the tool yes. in, in many ways. Like, you know, we, we don't refer to our computer probably as he or she in, in English, right? Exactly. We stay away from calling typewriter by its name. That's right. And uh, here, this is an attempt that, since it simulates conversation, we think we are speaking to, to something that has a sort of position of identity. Yes. And, and we know that that conversation is not something that it is imagining. It is simply reformulating things that we've fed it. And, uh, you know, TVs and radios talk to us as well. Uh, but, you know, they don't interact with us in the way that this does. And I think that's the big um, difference in terms of, of the illusion of having a conversation. But, you know, there's so many great potential applications. A New Yorker just had a piece on um, uh, therapy through this kind of AI. And, and in many cases, it's proved beneficial in places where there simply aren't enough therapists. And uh, it brings up all sorts of other issues of privacy and what happens to the database and all of those things. And these are all things that we need to be thinking about. And I, I would really love for our political class to be engaging with them at a much deeper level than they have so far. I think you brought an interesting point. It's, uh Again, position of humanity seeking possibilities of connecting with somebody or something in this case. And then a couple of months ago, I had a chance to interact with Robot Sophia. So again, something what has possibilities of using artificial intelligence to converse with people that could be also programmed. But I know that the same company, Hanson Robotics, created uh, nurses who can assist people who are elderly living by themselves and control their medication intake and converse with them. So there is this illusion of interaction with another being. Yeah. And it's it's a good thing, right? If, if there's not another human being there to help, it's better than not having anybody there. Um, and so there are applications that can be humane applications with this sort of cold technology. Um, and it, it strikes us as dystopian. Uh, but I think if we can be less emotional about it, there, there's certainly room for a lot of very humane applications and needed applications of, of this technology. Maybe the better closing question for both of us would be here. Can artificial intelligence make us human, more human than we are today? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. What do you think? I think it will challenge our own boundaries. How do we really perceive our own humanity when there's a simulation of it, right? When this allows us to 
fear that something could be faster and more efficient than we are. And something is going to question our own limits. And something is going to question our, I think, own existence within the space of resources we're competing over. Yes. Can the machine say that you're the wasteful individual at one point and say, therefore, you should not really participate in the occupation of space in this in this time and space. Yeah, well, that was the great fear, right? right. Uh, when, when AI becomes hyper-rational, they'll figure out that we're a pox on the land right. <laughs> and try to get rid of us. Yeah, absolutely. I think, but I think you make a good point in that it's going to, it, it forces us to think deeply about what makes us unique as, as embodied human beings who will die. Right, who are here for just a short time. And, you know, it's maybe something that we've become pretty blasé about uh, because we haven't been challenged. Although, you know, in a way, technology has always disrupted human labor. And you see that in factory, in manufacturing, right? Where now you go to Slovakia and there are uh, car manufacturers where there's only two human beings supervising a floor full of robots and the robots do everything right so i think people who were in manufacturing have already been there right? i think in, in, in a very interesting way you anticipate my next question you brought slovakia so the same region the, the store of golem of prague created by the rabbi who is seeking a position of becoming equal to deity that can create life that can create sentient being that could work in service of him so is artificial intelligence the new golem of prague yeah that would be frightening indeed right i don't <laughs> but, know if i want to end yeah, with that but, yes, uh, yes. But, and pinocchio right, right right this this idea of breathing life uh into an inanimate uh, but i think since we stay in the, in the region of, of, of former Czechoslovakia, let's just think about Milan Kundera and immortality. Is this opportunity for us to kind of create an immortal version of us by utilizing artificial intelligence to really build some kind of memory of whoever we are? Yeah, well, that's the tech dream, right? That's a sort of tech bro dream to download your brain onto a mainframe and then, you know, uh, exist forever, forever. <laughs> but you know the, it, it may stay forever but it's not going to be human because to be human is to be finite and to be human means to fear that uh, end and therefore spur us to create meaning uh, all of it may be an illusion right um, but it is it is that quest for meaning in the day-to-day -day, uh, that is what defines us as a species. And so if we download all our memories and our tics and our proclivities onto a mainframe, yes, that will continue, but we will not feel the sun on our face. We will not feel the grass beneath our feet. Uh, we will not wipe the tears of a child. We will have no body with which to do that. And to me, that is the joy of being alive, is to experience the world through the body and through the senses. And uh, that is the great gift of, of, this, of this life, of, of you know, dancing on this earthly plane. That is the gift of it. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for this wonderful conversation. And 
waiting anxiously your new book. When is this going to be Thank out you. The in the bookstores? Publication date is June 27th, and it's called The Apartment, and it'll be out uh, everywhere books are sold, as they say. So stay tuned for Hannah's new book. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs>